gatherings aren't just ways of coming together. They're expressions of identity. If I go to a music concert, it's saying, I'm not just a music fan, I'm an Aluna fan, right? I'm a Grateful Dead fan. And what does that actually say about me? And I think when you actually have a musician or an artist or a tennis player or a baseball team, that becomes an expression of identity that's across classes, which we have hundreds of examples of over the last century. That is how you make sure that we still have a lively commons. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. This week, we'll be talking with Aluna Francis from the band Aluna George about her song Together. Also joining us is trained facilitator and conflict resolution expert Priya Parker. Priya is the author of the book, The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters, and has spent 15 years helping communities have complicated conversations at moments of transition. She also has worked on race relations on American college campuses and on the peace process in the Arab world, Southern Africa, and India. The title of this week's episode is Together, How We Can Learn to Gather More Meaningfully. Hello, Aluna and Priya. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Hey, my pleasure. So, Aluna, we're here to talk about your song together. And I've got to tell you, this number really does it for me. Oh, good. <laughs> I think in my kind of my happy place for music, it just it hits a lot of buttons. It's got the jazzy chords, a good Stevie Wonder vibe. And with that alone, I'd say I'd be halfway there. But if you throw a song title or any lyrics that suggest even the remotest of hippie sentiments about togetherness and harmony, I'm like, I am there and it's, it's a rap. But after having listened to that song and checked out the lyrics, I realized that it is not that it is something entirely different, but rather than speculate further, I thought I'd ask you to, to give us some background on the song and tell us what it's about. Well, I have to say that I'm one for sitting down and pouring over the lyrics and the rhymes and the meaning and the story and the metaphors and things like that for hours. But I definitely didn't do that with this one. Me, Kate Trinada and Goldlink um, were in New York and the opportunity came up to, first of all, for me to work with Kate Trinada. And I was thinking like, oh, it'd be so cool to have Goldlink come through and they both told me that they, they weren't really getting on at the moment. Mm. And I was thinking, what? What's going on with you guys? Why on earth would you be having any kind of beef? And I was pretty hell-bent on them coming together. So I think that that's where the lyrics actually came from, for my part. Because it's, I have to say, it's not, some, it's not a subject that I find easy to write about, and I don't write about it very often. Well, how would you define the subject? Um, cutting the crap and realizing, I don't know, that you just need, just need to resolve whatever conflict in order to move forward. Yeah. It's not particularly deep but or complicated, but it's one of those things in life where it's hard to sing about or talk about because it's so simple. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's so simple, it's kind of hard to do. Yeah. And in the end, the advice is always, always sounds very much kind of like, just get along. <laughs> yeah. But it's a feeling, it's often a feeling that gets you there. So the music 
I think is what really tells that story. I think it's a simple sentiment, but it's also a profound one because it's about the importance of of showing up, you know, and or to borrow from the twelve step vernacular, faking it till you make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I finally got Goldlink to to come over, and it was like two thirty in the morning, and he was he wasn't committed to getting involved. He was just like there, like, and I was talking to him about the word bitch and how he uses it and how he thinks it comes across. And, um, I think in, at the time I was in a place where I was trying to, I was trying to understand hip hop lyrics. Um, it was really the height of trap, trap music, which is very misogynistic Mm. and very violent. And I, I'd just been, I'd just kind of experienced having a song come out where I'd done my part and then, um, some rappers came on afterwards and I wasn't really asked about it and their lyrics were really violent. So I was kind of real up on my, like, why do you talk like that about women? Mm. And he listened to me and he, he tried to explain where he was coming from, but then he's, he was just really inspired to explore a part of his lyrical content that he's never explored before. And it was fascinating to watch it, his mind tick over. And then he was like, I'm getting in this, I'm getting in the booth. And he walked in there and he talked about his mother and he talked about not calling women bitches. And it just flowed out of him, this kind of harmony with, with, with womanhood and women. And I was just like, wow, that that's amazing. And it was seriously, it was a one take. Mine was a one take, his was a one take. And, you know, at the end of it, we were all friends, you know, so it, it did It did bring us together. You know, when I listened to you talk about this moment and debating whether to kind of speak up and <laughs> and say something or not, the way I would frame it as a, as a conflict resolution facilitator is you were, you were playing with healthy heat. Right. And I've heard you talk about that. <laughs> and so much of, um, you know, so much of, of human connection and human relationships is designed to preserve some amount of equilibrium and status quo because there is an element of stasis that keeps the relationship together. And yet we tend to avoid conflict because we don't want things to fall apart, but they end up falling apart anyway because we get stuck in unhealthy peace, which is not saying anything. And so what you leaned into in that moment with Goldlink is naming and and pushing and provoking, in this case, his use of language and a very specific term. And in part, it was a helpful invitation because you didn't make a like a broad generalization about his relationship to women. You started with a very specific intervention, which is, tell me about that word. Yeah. And what I hear when you use that word and how are you using it? And you invited him into, you know, controversy, a generous controversy, controversy that could actually lead to, to a journey for him and to a journey for you. And in my life, so much of my work as a conflict resolution facilitator comes from growing up in a household that was mired in unhealthy peace, like t- to the point where my parents divorced. When, and when they told me they were getting separated, I was shocked because they never fought. Mm. And so much of my professional work has been trying to both personally and professionally kind of undo the chains and relationships that keep us from speaking because we think they'll fall apart. And I think so much of what you are exploring in your work, and I think also in what I've read about you coming out as an independent artist, 
is that invitation to give voice and to invite some healthy heat, whether it's with your collaborators or in any other context, and not knowing what the outcome might be. Mm-hmm. Certainly, it's my my sort of journey in, in dipping my toe in healthy heat has been on a personal level and seeing what's the worst that can happen. So it, it I feel like seeing what the result is has encouraged me to then move towards healthy heat with the outside world. But it's a big leap for me. So would you say typically you're more buttoned up? Yes. Publicly and in general, as my sort of face as a musician, I'm buttoned up pretty Mm. much. But if you get me comfortable and you show me that you have a open forum personality i will go i will talk about the ends of the earth um there is there's very few areas that i won't talk about and i have had really crazy conversations with people about all kinds of subjects very controversial ones i can hold my own in in those conversations but it's interesting that in groups especially where the platform is not geared towards healthy heat debate, I, I button all the way up. I don't even, I'm just, I, I, and I would like to break through that because I think Mm -hmm. that, um, we call them haters, right? Internet Mm -hmm. people that express themselves in a kind of very simplified negative way. I still think that there is positive in their reaction. And I've also seen that depending on how you angle yourself you inspire their attention or you don't mm-hmm. so when i when i discussed my um abuse and uh, sexual harassment in the workplace i did not inspire the base level haters to talk to me i inspired people who want to discussion debate to notice me so that it was interesting to see that that's possible yeah yeah i mean i was just going to say i you know when i watch public moments and they happen on Twitter or TikTok or, you know, choose your favorite newspaper. I try to look at them with the lens of, is this healthy heat or is this unhealthy heat? Is this what I call generative or generous controversy? Does this help us look at something in a new light? Does this argument or does this battle help us not only look at these two people battling it out, but look at our own relationship to what they're battling over? Or is it simply controversy for controversy's sake? When I say generous heat or generative heat and Aluna talking to Goldlink and saying, hey, what's your, you know, why are you using the word bitch? Tell me more about that. Yes, that's a conversation between these two artists. But Mm -hmm. the reason it's generative meaning it can lead to something else, not only in Goldlink evolving, but in all of us, is because they become proxies or vessels for a conversation that we are all trying to figure out in our own worlds. You know, what does language mean? Can it mean something in a different context if you hear it versus I hear it? Who can use certain, you know, certain words and who can't? Is it misogynistic or is it reclaiming? Like all of these words, we don't have to necessarily be part of the argument, meaning our actual words, to be part of the argument, if you see what I'm saying. Like yeah. their argument is almost in service of all of us trying to figure out where do we stand and how am I in my communities and what is okay to use. Um, one of the things I notice happening 
with a lot of these public conversations is that the intention of an individual who perhaps tries to spark healthy debate eventually and almost inevitably turns to them saying, everyone has been mean to me since I spoke up. They've been <laughs> critical. They've been abusive. Yeah. They've, you know, to the, to the basically the most extreme linguistic behavior on the internet. And I'm always curious about it because being someone who's pretty much terrified to get involved in the first place anyway, I imagine if I was going to, that I would prepare myself to take all of that stuff in the right way. But what do you, what do you think about that? Like, do you think that all of that stuff is part and parcel of the healthy heat or is that, do you think a symptom, symptom of it when it's uh, unhealthy heat? That's such a good question. I don't think it has to be part and parcel of healthy heat. And I think we have things like massive trolling and Twitter, you know, lynch mobs and, you know, that to me is unhealthy heat. And I think part of the reason we are in that, in that situation is because the tools that we are using for public debate were not created for public debate. Twitter was created originally to see if, you know, some, a group of friends would be interested in someone else reporting on them going to the bathroom or you know whatever they're doing over the course of the day it has evolved into this very interesting tool like ebay originally at least the myth was you know to help his wife sell her like her pez collection and then it <laughs> developed in this very different thing and with twitter you know i, I spoke there before all of this uh, and, and they tweet a lot of their speakers so i'm not speaking out of turn here and they brought me in in part because they're interested in becoming the world's dinner party, like where, where public conversations happen, we want to be that. And, and one of the things I said to them was, you can't be that until you create the healthy ground rules that allow for that. Right. And right now there's, there's no healthy ground rules. And so it, there are now codes that have been generated by users, like hashtags was created by a user, but part of healthy heat allows for creating the ground rules that create enough safety for you to take risk. And right now there's no safety on Twitter right. or Facebook for that matter. But when you spoke with Twitter about it and suggest that they have uh, a tighter framework, did they bristle at that? Did they, what was the response? No. And, you know, I'll just be very clear here. I went in as a speaker, not as a consultant. And so right. they didn't bristle at all. I mean, and at some level who I was speaking with within the company were the designers. And so I think most employees within Twitter join in part for these aspirational goals and reasons and in part to buttress public discourse. Mm -hmm. But I think at some level, you know, it's evolved over the last 10, 12, 15 years. They, like many tech companies, when your purpose evolves, but the underlying technology has been built generation after generation on a different purpose. And then you have community members who have been part of this evolution for 10 or 15 years it's not clear who has the power to actually just switch the light off or, or, or you know, close, close certain rooms. I mean, it's a very complicated situation because users, and in my terminology, I'd say guests, have started to, and this is a successful job of a gathering, feel like they own this thing. And so it's actually very complicated to also just shut down certain parts of it. And so anyway, long story short, they were thinking maybe they could start doing conversations that, you know, that are promoted within a hashtag or, how, you know, how tightly or how 
loosely do you change an algorithm? It's complicated. It's very complicated. And Mm -hmm. they have a civic responsibility that they didn't originally sign up for, and they are now trying to figure out. Right. Are there any practical steps that you'd suggest they could implement in terms of how you would apply your philosophy on having a meaningful gathering? I mean, I think first is have ethicists and conflict resolution facilitators and uh, people trained in language and power and racial discourse write your terms of engagement, not lawyers. Mm. Right. So the first thing is this needs to be a completely philosophical shift right now. It's, you know, the terms are actually based on privacy, which obviously <laughs> that went really well, mm. but, but also <laughs> legal implications. And I think part of this is like, we're asking the wrong questions. It's like, what is the purpose of this place? What needs to be true in order for that purpose to be fulfilled? You know, what does it mean to actually engage in this community in a way that is, that is generative? And then also, I mean, at every gathering, you don't want to just be this, you know, buttoned up, slightly boring place. There should be space for transgression. There should be space for risks and boundaries. It goes back to our conversation about heat, right? It's not cutting all of the heat out, but it is actually starting with a different set of questions and then beginning to ask, you know, what is the implication of a like button? What is the implication of a heart? Instagram recently changed, and I think it's a really good thing, changed the fact that you can't see how many people like to post. Now, if it's over a thousand, it just says thousands of likes, right? They're trying to change the clickbait a bit, but everybody's catching up because the people who started these companies don't necessarily have a power lens or a community lens. They have a, an engineer and a design lens and you need both. I have a question. How have you been thinking about um, some of the rules of protection that you discussed that maybe are possible in specific scenarios, like how to kind of almost spread that further into the online gathering world? Do you you feel like some some things are quite adaptable and could be applied to more public-facing platforms? Maybe the idea of a safe public space, given the nature of the technologies that we now all have, is a is a dead idea. Maybe. I don't know. Or or just that it's very difficult to create terms, create a common set of ground rules when you're a participant, right? So just stepping back in terms of just kind of gathering language or, or when, when we think about creating a, an intervention or a community dialogue between two parties, there's always a host. Right. And the host could be an organization with a lot of credibility. It could be two members, two leaders within two communities that have a lot of credibility. But there's always a host and the host needs to have legitimacy, meaning that everybody participating says, yes, I agree. They're legitimate. If they're in, I'm in or they have buy in to the purpose. And then those hosts, whoever has legitimacy, can create the ground rules, right? Which is these are the preconditions. If you're going to talk about you can't you know, we, we're not going to use this type of language or it needs to be on neutral territory. It can't be in the NFL offices. It can't be in the, you know, wh- whatever the terms are. In a public conversation, the way Twitter and Facebook have kind of emerged, it's unclear who the hosts are. So it's for anybody stepping out, they're a participant in the public conversation. They're not the host. Mm. So so at some level, you you can't create ground rules as a participant, right? You don't have the, you don't have the legitimacy. People have to agree to your ground rules, which is, I think, mm. what Twitter and Facebook are struggling with. And they don't want to tighten it too much. But I think that there's different appropriate conversations in different contexts, but that should not happen on Twitter, right? So mm. for every gathering you have to figure out, for every concert you have to figure out, for every, for every intervention you have to figure out, 
Why are we doing this? Who is this for? What platform should it happen on? And what are the terms of the debate? Yeah. So I would imagine that a lot of people are reaching out to you right now to get your take on how we adapt to our current situation with the pandemic. And in the context of what we're just talking about, I want to know, this is a very broad question, but do you have more or less fear for the health of our democracy as you see how we are evolving to, to interact right now? And how things are, you know, we're forced to be online and, um, and, and all, it's all happening so, so fast. At this moment, I have more fear. I think that one of the fundamental elements of democracy is voting and in getting voting participation up. And well before the virus, there were all sorts of initiatives to increase voter participation. And now with with voting, you know, particularly in this general election, but but you know, primaries being canceled or or not canceled, and people having to hold two values, which is citizenship and their health, is a is is a terrible thing. Um, no. And so, you know, I personally think mail-in voting is a, is a, going to be a very important, uh, potentially permanent fix, but definitely temporary temporary fix. But I also think it's very difficult to organize if you can't assemble. You know, in, in dictatorships, the first freedom they take is the right to assemble, in part because things happen when you assemble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think some of the most interesting conversations that, that I've been listening to is how do you, how do you organize when you can't be together? And there is historical precedent for this. The Howard Dean campaign showed us years ago this could happen. You know, the Obama, the first term of the Obama uh, election showed us that actually there's a lot of power in online organizing. So it's not that we don't know how to do it, but mm. I, I do worry about the physical implications of not being able to gather in the ways that we were able to pre-virus. Yeah. The result of what you're talking about, of having meaningful gatherings is so clear is we want to have, we want to bring people together. Things are so polarized and the situation is so dire that we need to do everything we can. And that seems very possible to me in a world where there are different cultures. But when it comes to bridging class divides, income inequality, that's where I personally would feel at a loss as to how we approach that, how you bring people together from very different income groups. Here we are four years into to Trump's presidency and income gap continues to grow wider. Based on your expertise, what can we do? Reinvest in public spaces, reinvest in public parks, in libraries, reinvest in the places to make them so beautiful that regardless of your income, you want to be there and that you brush shoulders or, you know, in a post-corona world, brush six feet apart from each other. And also that we already know how to do that. I think concerts are, and, and again, ticket prices matter also for concerts. You know, Bruce Springsteen concerts are this, this sort of, I think, a Dolly Parton concerts are, are the epitome of of breaking down class. I think also you know, soccer, right? The World Cup, sports, mm-hmm. these kind of massive public gatherings. Gatherings are, aren't just, you know, ways of coming together. They're expressions of identity. And these events, mm-hmm. as much as possible, one is investing in public infrastructure and public spaces and, and, and not the privatization of all of these places and spaces. And then the second is from the, from the, 
economic side, from the business side, is to think very radically about ticket prices and about, you know, Amanda Palmer thinks very deeply about stuff like this. Amy Whitaker in the art space talks about giving artists fractional equity, which is if you sell a piece of art and it increases in its price, the artist gets the percentage of the increase, not just the price at the sale, right? Like we already have examples of how to deeply think about equity economics, but we need to start putting it into the mainstream element of our capitalist convening places. Yeah. So I would like to hear, just get some basic definitions from you, Priya. In your book, you talk a lot about what makes a gathering meaningful, what makes a, a an exchange meaningful. And earlier we were talking about when when conversation and discourse is public, that it becomes performative. Uh, when we have this kind of outmoded form of conversation where we're we're on autopilot, we're having chit chat, killing time. Would you? Is it fair to say that that is performative as well? Does that serve no real uh, meaningful purpose? So, when I say performative, I mean that you're doing an action for a reason other than the uh, the direct need. Mm-hmm. And performance isn't a bad thing, right? It, 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 it just depends on what the purpose of the gathering is. What I'm talking about is, I, I think, something we all want, which is to move beyond performative in these moments to meaningful. I'll give a simple example. I have a friend who uh, re- who turned 50 and he he noticed that in his life, there were a lot of people that once they turned 50, they began to, to shrink, and I don't mean physically, but they begin to take less risks. They begin to contract. And he said, the thing I most need and want to remember when I'm 50 and when I turn 50 and move on is I want to always expand. And so for my birthday this year, I'm going to invite the people in my life who always represent expansion. And at the beginning of the dinner, he just went around the table and said, I've invited, you all have something in common. And that is you all are people who have always represented expansion to me. And as I turn 50, my, my ask for you is that you continue to help me expand. And in 30 seconds, right, he moved from performative to meaningful, which is he gave them all a sense of their commonality, but he also was starting to touch on a value that he wanted them to help him with, right? He's actually saying, I need you. I'm struggling with this. And he was also seeing them for something that they may not have realized he saw, right? So it's not rocket science, but it's starting to think about in any of these contexts, how do you Bring, how do you figure out what is the underlying purpose and need in a gathering? And how do you bring people mm-hmm. around it and connect people to the purpose and to each other in a meaningful way? I, yeah, I really love that in your book. Um, just the importance of specificity with setting an intention. And, uh, and also that um, a purpose should be disputable. A purpose in, in creating a gathering. Is that the word that you use, disputable? Yes. Um, so disputable means that not everybody has to agree with it. Right. I'll give an example from the work context. I got an email a few months ago from an executive director of a nonprofit and and she had read The Art of Gathering and she said, you know, until I, I, I ran these board meetings and I, I, I don't know, they, they were fine and I would leave and I, I kept on thinking, why is this bothering me? And she said she realized that there were kind of a horse and pony show where she was giving all of the board members kind of all the best things that were happening in the organization and they're going through the motions. And she decided that this was not useful to them or to her. And she wanted to flip the purpose. So the underlying need that she hadn't articulated was 
basically to get the board members off her back. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she wanted to switch the purpose to actually organize the meeting so that she was bringing their biggest challenges and problems to the board members. And when she told her staff that she wanted to do this, they freaked out. It was a disputable purpose. No, 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 no. You don't, you don't actually want to tell them that what if, you know, what if they cut our funding? It was disputable. Not everyone agreed with it, but it was specific. And she, and she did it. And those meetings kind of came alive again. And she got notes from board members saying, wow, I remember why I first joined this board. Right. But not everybody was pleased with it. And so disputation basically means it's specific and dis- it's disputable, which is people can disagree with the reason to having it. And that it will also help you with your guest list. Like once you know what you're for, then it also shakes out who should be there. And not everybody mm-hmm. should be at everything. I mean, Aluna, it's like with your concerts or as you launch your first solo album, you know, a question every artist asks is like, who is my audience? Who might I want it to be? And also who finds me and what do I stand for? And it's always a dance between the two. But if you're for everybody, you're kind of for nobody. Yes, and that's a very particular area that I put a lot of thought into. I basically just ask for help on it because it is, I think it it happens, it's confusing when I'm going from being someone's support act, so I'm talking to a whole different audience to mine, or I'm at a festival where I haven't, nobody's been invited in a specific way that they're, they're, they're there because they're, they're curious and then all the way to an intimate show of my own with my own, just my own fans and everything in between. And I get tongue tied, you know, because I so often I'm like, well, this isn't the platform for speaking about real issues because people just want to dance and they just want to let go and they just they don't want to listen to me talk about anything and I find it very very hard to chit chat and just have like cool sound bitey sentences come out of my mouth I'm the type of person who hates going to the pub because the level of conversation in that tradition is always pretty much surface level and so I can find myself silent and only singing for many many songs throughout a set and then Mm. my voice will try and come out and I'm like (laughs) (laughs) Um, but for example I've noticed that if the platform changes I become more inclined to speak and I've I kind of I guess I didn't really think about the idea of there being an intention difference in all of those different environments, I always kind of punished myself for not being consistent in my integrity as a, as a, as an artist to be able to just be free and say whatever I want to say, wherever I am at any time, because I'm sensitive to those environments. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, being half Jamaican, half Indian slash British, you're probably really, really, really good at navigating different environments. And if you're like me, it's been a superpower. And at some point, you know, you disappear <laughs> and have to start <laughs> figuring out like, <laughs> okay, well, who am I? If everybody's watching, who am I? I remember my, you know, my wedding, I was, uh, part of me was terrified because it was the first time that all sets of my parents and all of their opposite you know, religious beliefs and political beliefs would be in the same room. And so mm. I had to figure out what I, I had to say the same sentence because everyone was going to watch it. <laughs> um, my, my husband used to tease me. I didn't realize that when I would go to one house and somebody sneezed, I'd say, bless you. 
And in yeah. another, and then the other house, somebody sneezes, I say, God bless you. And I, you know, oh. I, don't, I don't even realize it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I would just say a couple of things as you, you know, as you navigate this, if it's helpful in any way, I think the first is, you know, don't worry about kind of, again, being political for political sake, quote unquote, uh, you know, perhaps just start and, and practicing your voice. And I, you know, I can relate to having my voice shake if I'm in a public context um, the first few times is just practice for every song or every two songs, practice what, stepping into the mic and just giving one minute, a one minute story about yourself or your life or the history of that song. Mm. And just wrap meaning and wrap context around the song. So like even though what you said at the beginning of our conversation about um, about the bitch conversation to say mm. that right before the together song to, mm. to, to give a history. So so don't worry so much about trying to like be provocative. And that's when I say again, I don't even you know, controversy for controversy's sake is not helpful. Right. It's clickbait. It's conversational mm. clickbait. Start with just trying to connect with your audience to help them understand the journey to that song. And the journey to that song is going to be the journey through you and through the mm -hmm. conversations that you are a part of and just start mm -hmm. there. And then I think the second, have you heard the Dolly Parton podcast? No. So right. I'm going to send it to you. Um, it is, it's amazing. Uh, Matt, have you, have you listened to it? I have. Yeah, it's great. Um, so it is, a beautiful episode, a series on Dolly Parton. And I think one of the things that I haven't listened to all of them, but I've listened to the first seven and it's a beautiful kind of homage and, and look at a woman who over decades has navigated this question. Like, when do I weigh in and when do I say nothing? And, and, and at some level, I think one of the counterintuitive elements of, I think she's often, she's been criticized over years by some people for, for sidestepping politics, right? It's like the church ladies and the tattooed lesbians are all at her concerts. Mm, <laughs> yes, I think that's like yeah. a line from the podcast. And how does she do this? And I think I, I listened to that podcast and I loved it. It's a beautiful work of art that mm. I think that listening to that podcast will help you as you begin to navigate your journey and to think about when do you, when and how do you speak and when does where you perform speak for itself and when do words speak for itself and when does your life speak for itself? You know, that reminds me of something we just had uh, Renee Fleming on last week, who's about as big an opera star as there is. Mm -hmm. She was talking about having late career stage fright. <laughs> and she said that the way she was able to overcome it was to shift her attitude from seeing the audience as a judging body to one where she sees herself as a sharing body. Mm. As in she put herself into the audience and took that perspective as a, as a sharing body? What I took from, what I took it is that she's just shifting the direction of her focus towards she is there to share rather than she is there to be judged by an audience. Right. Like she moved from receiving, from receiving judgment to mm. giving care mm. or yeah. giving song. And which really speaks to what you talk a lot about in your book, Priya, about the importance of being a generous host and, and being a generous, generosity and hosting is not always in line with uh, you know, taking a hands-off approach. Right. In fact, or pleasing everybody. Your, 
Yeah, exactly. Well, how, how, what do you say to um, individuals like me who are basically the host and the uh, what did the the contestant? What did you? How did you mm-hmm. define it? So, a couple of things. One is I would go as upstream as possible, and this is going. This can be complicated. What I mean by that is, think about what you name your concerts. Think about on that ticket stub, what is written on there? What is stamped on there besides date, time, and place? Every concert, every gathering starts from the moment of discovery. And the moment of discovery is when the guest realizes that there's this future event that they want to come to. But you you actually have a lot of power to shape the experience by what you actually put in the invitation. Not just what you name the concert, but it's like bring A and then bring, you know, I'm making this up, but bring your favorite. This concert is about together. Like bring a photo of someone that you love who who you who can't come to this concert. Just just bring it with you, right? Or like have them bring some object or some symbol. You you also represent so many different things. You can say I'm from two different worlds, but so many of us are. You don't have to be half Indian, half Jamaican to be from two different worlds. Bring it. Bring two symbols of two different worlds that you're a part of, and that could be like mm. my dad's a Yankees f- f- fan and my mom's a Red Sox fan. You know, and those are two mm-hmm. different worlds. Like. It doesn't have to be race, but think about an object or a thought that people can bring with them that is Mm -hmm. relevant and authentic to you well before they even walk through the door. Mm -hmm. And that's the first. The second is once is think about how you open and whoever opens, whether it's you or whether it's an opening act or whether it's a, a manager, never start with logistics. Start with a story. Start with what, what. Start with a song. Start with what you most want people to experience, um, and then do kind of the logistics of the you know in in creative ways. Um, and then I think the third is what I said earlier, which is very as much as you think about your songs, think about the interstitching one of what you want to say, the stories you want to share. Two, how you involve if there are other people on stage with you, and the and the way to spotlight them. I mean, this is a simple example, but the show, you know, podcasts are now, you know, uh, opening, you know, busting open as a field. I think there's 600,000 podcasts before Corona. And now apparently Amazon is like out of podcast mics. (laughs) I mean, it's exploding. And almost every show has a credits at the end. And most people have the host or a, or a executive producer read the credits. Like who else is part of this on being has this very, a podcast by uh, Krista Tippett has this very simple uh, intervention where she just has everybody who's on her team read their own name as part of the closing mm. credits. It's such oh, wow. a simple act, right? But it and then changed- Lizzo raps. Say it again. And then Lizzo raps. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, well, that's at the a, end every, of every show I did. I mean, end of a show. Yeah, Lizzo. I think every one of those shows ends with Lizzo saying, "This has been a Krista Tippett production." Oh, I didn't even know that. That's amazing, right? That's a little wink. And so this is an example of when I say like you can make logistics meaningful, her small intervention that 600,000 other people are doing, but didn't occur to do it in that way. She's still crediting them. She's still saying the names, but she's having them say it in their same voice. And you hold, you you listen longer. You can imagine who they are. You wonder, you know, who these people are. You also feel differently about them. They're not just a number of faces, you know, behind the scene. And so think about for yourself, how can you honor the people around you? And then the last thing I'd say is for every show, think about one way you can connect the audience to each other, meaning to the, like themselves. And that yeah. could be in the opening or after a song, you tell a story about a song and you say, before I start, I just want you to turn around to someone next to you, someone you didn't come with and tell the, and, 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 and tell them about a story about when you were a 
child and you're navigating two worlds. I mean, it doesn't have to be that intimate, but whatever, like connect it to the story you're saying and then invite them to interstitch with the, with each other. And that's the part where particularly if in this moment you have a lot of different people coming to your concerts and they're together for, for you, you actually have this opportunity to, to cross stitch them around the purpose behind your songs and your lyrics. It doesn't have to all be you holding that space. Right. Like showing how I, un- I, what I understand about them and how they relate to each other. Yes. I just, you know, it's like, it's so much to just hold you singing, you performing you, and it's all like you're feeding off their energy. But I think yeah. one opportunity for mass gatherings, and I say this to politicians as well, is how do you also not just have, you know, 10,000 threads to you, to this one center on the stage. How do you also interstitch those 10,000 threads to each other? Mm. We were talking about something earlier. It was about the company and about how they addressed their board. It seemed to me that what you were talking about was the host was choosing something that sought truth rather than one that came from a place of fear. In that example, yes. And I think not just truth, like, frankly, a different relationship. It's a different social contract with what is the role of a board. To, to me, it, it would just seem that that would be always the path to take, one that's going to reveal the greater truth about the relationship. And I think that that, for, you know, for my money anyway, reading your book, like the point of letting these outmoded forms of interaction die out is because they're just, they're uh, letting s- stagnant uh, relationships stick around longer than they should. I mean, I th- yeah, I think it depends on the context. You know, I'm not an expert on this. I think somebody who has written very beautifully and has continued writing about how much, when is it helpful to be truthful and when is it helpful to obfuscate is Philip Gorovich. And he's a writer. He wrote, um, we wish to inform you that tomorrow we will be killed along with our families. And he's continued to write about Rwanda for many, many, many years. And I think, you know, it, it, it like everything, it depends on the context as to when, uh, when is it, how, you know, how much is, is kind of brutal truth and telling somebody everything they think about them versus what is actually, you know, what is, what is social cohesion in a diverse society? And, and frankly, the deeper, you know, questions that, that what is now called political correctness is bringing up, which is how, depending on the relationship and depending on the goals and the purpose, you know, what level of, of communication, of transparency, of vulnerability is appropriate. Mm -hmm. And if you only have one matter of, of speaking, which is kind of bearing your soul vulnerability, it actually also limits the type of relationships you can have in a public sphere. Mm. And what's your take on how we've moved as a culture to embrace vulnerability? I mean, I think in terms of, you know, vulnerability and intimacy are deeply intertwined. And I, you know, the the writer and researcher, Brene Brown, I think has, I think it'd be fair to largely credit to kind of bring this word into the kind of the mainstream kind of cultural ethos over the last, I don't know, five or six years since her her TEDx talk went viral and, and all of her books since then. And I think vulnerability is a very powerful element in intimacy and for connection. And in certain contexts, intimacy and connection is inappropriate. 
you know, when systems of power are deeply imbalanced in a workplace, you know, if you're trying to temporary, if you're trying to create a gathering to temporarily equalize everybody and you have the CEO ask an intern, you know, to be more vulnerable, depending on the context, that may not be appropriate. And so I think mm. like everything, it, it depends on the context. Um, I think yeah. that it's really powerful to see vulnerability as a strength, particularly in terms of leadership and, in, uh, you know, asking the powerful to be vulnerable, I think is a, is a huge gift and a huge um, shift in our perception of leadership. Asking the weak to be vulnerable or to think to ask to be vulnerable, it hits, you know, it is appropriate across um, different contexts, I think is, um, is very dangerous. Mm, yeah, I hear that. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on for Such this. Such a fun show. Thanks for having me. Aluna, lovely to meet you. I'll send you the, you well, too. if Matt can connect us, I'll send you the, uh, the Dolly Parton podcast. I will. Please do. I would love that. I'd love to stay in touch. Be sure to check out Aluna's debut solo album, Renaissance, and go to priyaparker.com to keep up with all things Priya Parker. Sing for Science is co-produced with The Talk House, and our music is by Italian artist Panoram. Special thanks to Frank Woodworth, Nora Keller, Rhett Sword, Ottavio Media, and TCB Public Relations for helping make today's episode possible. If you like what you heard, check out our other episodes and subscribe to the show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>